Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Nordic Entertainment Group Chief Content Officer Philippa Wallerstam, Fremantle International Chief Executive Jens Richter and Banerjee Head of Former Acquisitions Carlotta Rossi-Spencer. And in this special bumper episode from Cannes, C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks and C21 Kids Editor and Senior Reporter Karolina Kaminska to get their take on MIPCOM 2021. Yesterday marked the close of MIPCOM 2021, not only online but in real life as well, with the first physical event since the start of the coronavirus pandemic wrapping in Cannes. Nordic Entertainment Group Chief Content Officer Philippa Wallerstam, Fremantle International Chief Executive Jens Richter and Banerjee Head of Format Acquisitions Carlotta Rossi-Spencer were among those there, and we'll be hearing from them in a moment. But first, C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller and Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks paced La Croisette, parlayed in the Palais de Festival and sampled the cocktail soirees to gauge the mood of the market and the trends coming out of it. Along with C21 Kids Editor and Senior Reporter Karolina Kaminska back in London, they spoke to me about the major talking points coming out of Cannes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks, John. Hello. Hey, so how's it been? How's how's the week been in Cannes? It's been great, really. I think it's kind of felt like every everyone's first MIP again. It's kind of got that, that buzz and that energy of the first time you come to Cannes and you properly appreciate it. Because I think it's fair to say after multiple, multiple MIPs, um, for a lot of the veterans in the industry, there's a kind of sheen of cynicism, I think, around uh, coming to Cannes. And it, it was, you know, pre-pandemic, a bit of a slog, I think uh, it's fair to say, with people having back-to-back meetings. Uh, and this one, yeah, it's felt kind of very different, partly because, you know, there are fewer attendees. So people have been able to have um, longer meetings. That's one of the things I've been hearing. Um, so people, yeah, basically having an hour to meet and going into more depth about their shows and also, you know, just generally catching up, which I think is something everyone's missed. And yeah, just there's just been an overall greater appreciation for being able to come to the south of France. Um, you know, quite often on on someone else's money if you're working for, you know, if you haven't got your own company. So, yeah, and I think the weather's helped as well. I mean, it has been insanely good weather. So, yeah, in general, the mood's been brilliant. And I think people have, yeah, it's gone smoothly and there's a lot of confidence coming back into the the, the kind of events calendar now. I think I, I totally agree with that analysis, uh, Nico. I think um, one of the things I would add is that the, the buyer's renewed interest in, in new content, not just renewing existing hits or extending licenses for shows that they already air, which was the something that was happening a lot during uh, 2020 in the lockdown. Some of the distributors I've spoken to are saying that it was really hard to sell new shows last year, but this this market seems a lot easier. And, uh, you know, they're talking about renewed interest and, and a welcome change from from pitching on Zoom. You know, th- th- actually that, that, that joy has come back to it where they're actually happy to uh, to have meetings and and you know that that that, that sort of jaded distribution exec is, is no longer here uh, well obviously there's a lot of people that aren't here too the lack of us studios and big distribution groups um, is a, is a notable point uh, and that's been widely reported um one thing that is doing the lack of those big groups the big us studios it's allowing the mid-sized and smaller distributors to get some of the limelight you know obviously the the reasons why those big guys are staying away is is varied and well reported you know response to the rising cost of congested events calendar can't be ignored and obviously things like COVID and, and uh, the more strategic issues about 
retaining shows for their own streamers is a factor, obviously. But one of the things that, that this week has, has showed is, you know, the, the little guys, the medium-sized guys are, are um, uh, getting getting some of the the limelight. You know, the biggest dinner was Beta Film, you know, German distributor now perhaps seeing itself as a sort of top of the food chain here due to the absence of the bigger groups. Um, the biggest party was a, a tiny little Belgian company called Newbie. You know, the, the the distributors are telling us that they've got a real love for the new real estate that they've got in the Palais. You know, Uni France, the, the new TV France International has got a load of French indies where Viacom CBS usually is. A lot of Portuguese companies are where NBC Universal usually is. Media Man of France has taken the, the BBC Studios spot. So they get, they, they're out of the bunker. They're getting fresh air. They're getting sunlight. There's, there's a real positive vibe amongst those distributors in their new spaces. Obviously, an awful lot of new lounges and spaces for hanging out to, to fill the gaps. Uh, one producer was saying to me, um, you know, it's kind of like they were spoiled children before uh, the pandemic. And sometimes you have to have your toys taken away from you to to really appreciate what you have. And I think that's the case with, with MIPCOM. And I think, yeah, as Ed mentioned, yeah, just um, a lot of change. And I think once people got over the shock of the grand being closed, um, people, you know, of kind of the social side of it, it's, uh, it's all kind of spilled out along that strip behind the grand and a few other places kind of popping up as well since since we've all been away that are quite interesting. So, yeah, it's quite, uh, it felt like a, a very fresh and uh, fun Nipcom. Just just going back, John, to the, the the fact that the big boys aren't here. It's worth just looking back to MIP formats. That that as an event, the, the big format companies never really fully embraced that, and so it was very became very much driven by smaller companies from Korea, Japan, China, and it gave uh, a lot of space to those second and third tier companies to grow. And obviously, they did. And you know, everyone's seen what everyone's seen what's happened with South Korea over the last couple of years. So if like. I guess my question is, if the, if the big companies and the big studios shun MIPCOM on a more permanent basis, it will create a, a place for their competitors to grow and thrive. And eventually it will be, you know, not can we afford to come to MIPCOM for those big guys? It will be, can we afford not to come? Um, I think that, that that will come very soon, I think. And I suppose, you know, although the US players aren't here, you know, in full force, they are in some ways represented by all the European production companies that they now own. And there's a, a lot of them, um, you know, so via this network that they now have, I'm sure those European producers will be feeding back, you know, about the event to their owners, um, you know, that have these huge tentacles all around the world. And speaking of tentacles, it, in any conversation here at MIPCOM this year, it's it's not been too long before Squid Game pops up, um, kind of probably the biggest show in the world at the moment, especially if you, you know, believe Netflix's viewing figures, or at least the, the figures that they have been putting out out about how popular it is uh, it shot up you know to number one uh, i think um overtaken bridgerton um as its most watched original i think it's the case but it's interesting the fact that actually not a lot of people here have actually seen the whole thing or any of it so there's been a lot of talk about how audiences are looking for light fun uh, feel-good content and uh if anyone has seen squid game i haven't watched all of it i've only seen the first episode but i'm not sure feel good is uh the way you would describe it as very very violent uh it's very very dark 
all around quite a bleak show, but very interesting as well. So it's a there's kind of two waves of, of thought going around. It, it feels like one thinking that audiences are only looking for feel good content, but then I think one impact of the pandemic has been that people's tastes have broadened out. People are willing to try new things because they've been watching so much content. And I think you know variety is the spice of life. So people are looking for light and dark. And I think if the uh, the figures around uh, Squid Game are to be believed, it shows that audiences are very open to to really dark content. You know, subtitled South Korean um, dramas, um, which I think is a really interesting positive sign uh, for the industry, even if. Squid Game might not end up being everyone's cup of tea. Can I bring you in here, Carolina, to talk about, you know, the view of MIP from back in London? You've been tuning into some of the speaker sessions. What were the uh, the key takeaways for you? Okay, so obviously I'm um, I'm not in Cannes this week, sadly. Um, but from I've been I've been talking to quite a few producers and distributors this week who are there and um just echoing what Ed and Nico were talking about earlier, the, the consensus is that everybody they seem to be very busy actually, which is which is good. Um and everybody seems really, really happy to be to be back there enjoying themselves and very keen to be um heading on to other physical events afterwards. So that's very good to hear. MIP Junior was was quite different to normal this year with it being kind of squeezed into Monday's schedule among the other non-kids related stuff as opposed to having a whole weekend dedicated to it like it normally would. Um, so I tuned into the sessions on Monday uh, from London um, and there was quite a lot of talk on the new emerging trends that, that the sector has been seeing in kids. Uh, lots of research and analysis and data, which has been quite useful in determining in, in determining some of the main trends at the moment. So something that, that I picked up on uh, was that kids' appetite for live events and entertainment has been very strong, which is quite interesting. Uh, everybody's still saying that animation is king. Animation is still, um, you know, kids' favourite in 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 the children's genre. But live events is something that I mean, we've been talking about co-viewing for quite a while now since the pandemic hit, and how people are really enjoying that kind of family time or time spent with friends watching things together. And that doesn't. And there was there were fears that that might, as life returned to normal, that that might start to die out. But it, it, according to analysts, it doesn't appear to be doing that. Um, co-viewing seems to still be quite strong. Um, and live events, particularly sports, is something that's been that's been very popular. And actually, I think it was it was UK analysis firm, the Insights family, who spoke at MIP Junior and said that two thirds of children now watch TV at least once a day with their families. So that's quite an interesting stat there and shows that co-viewing doesn't seem to be disappearing anytime soon. Uh, with entertainment programs, game shows is something that has has come up a few times as a genre that has quite a lot of potential in the kids' space. With children seeking similar entertainment value to adults, their children's interests there are starting to align with adults more and more in the, in the types of entertainment and game shows that they like to watch. Um, and of course, yeah, as mentioned before, animation is as strong as ever. Um, and there seems to be a trend in shorter animated preschool series of under 10 minutes in length with shows like Pip and Posey, which is a Channel 5 milkshake series, French show Oggy Oggy, which is a spin-off to Oggy and the Cockroaches. Another thing that, that has been identified is TV series that are based on digital characters or YouTube stars. 
So one example of that is the Moshaya family animation, which is an animated series in the UAE uh, produced by Spacetoon uh, and based on a very successful real life YouTube influencer family of the same name. We're starting to see more and more of, of these programs being made. So one of the features that's um, in C21 Kids, the latest edition that's being distributed uh, down in Cannes, is uh, all about how Brexit has begun to impact the UK animation scene. Uh, Nico, you wrote that. Being on the ground there in Cannes, what's the sort of feeling regarding Brexit and how that's impacted the uh, the market this time? Yeah, so I wrote that piece for, for C21 Kids and the interviewees that uh, I did for that um, piece were very, very um, keen to emphasise just how much they want to continue their relationship with EU companies and Europe and also remind the industry of the fact that, you know, the UK is still a European country and for the time being still qualifies as European content. Um, so that was kind of the main thing that a lot of the interviewees wanted to get across. And I think that's kind of represented here at MIPCON by the fact that there are a lot of UK producers here keen to show their faces and, you know, reconnect with their European partners. You know, obviously the UK government has emphasized a lot about the opportunities with markets like Asia and Australasia. But, you know, Europe is still hugely important to the to the UK industry. And um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of a lot of Brits here um, in the in the usual haunts. Just, yeah, really emphasizing the fact that they're they're wanting to maintain those relationships with with their European partners. Ed, what's your perception of uh, Brexit and how that's impacted the uh, the atmosphere uh, and attitudes towards, say, co-production relationships in Cannes? Well, a lot of the UK companies that I've spoken to, the, the dis- distributors, and uh, uh, they're saying that the main reason they're here is just to you know regain connections with their European partners. You know, it's, the perception is that the UK has left Europe, it's left the EU, but obviously there's uh, still loads of relationships, and the UK companies are here to try and you know reconnect and, and remind everyone that they're still around. Um, you know, there's plenty of potential. I mean, the, one of the other things, John, that, I, that is really obvious is there is the, the number of Russian shows launching here, Russian companies, new Russian distributors, uh, and, and 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 it's a good example of the, uh, the the streaming boom because in Russia there's a really hot streaming market. There's like 20 streamers, and 10 of them are all producing loads and loads of original TV series. And obviously, those shows are all up for grabs. And and there's a real boom in um, what is being termed Moscow noir. Uh, by journalists like us and so it's, it's, it's really uh, obvious uh, all this Russian content that's uh, hitting the market um, I was at the uh, Keon launch and there's a new streamer in Russia called Keon which is growing very rapidly and it had a big a big launch last night and, and they're all getting into co-production. There's a real mood of, of co-production hitting the market uh, as all these uh, big streamers, are, you know, local streamers are, are upping their original productions. But the, um, the one of the consequences of all this streaming boom, you know, the, one of the big stories, not just in Russia, but around the world, is the proliferation of local streamers. Um, and it's great if you're a producer because they're all commissioning original content. But if you're a, a consumer or a subscriber to all these different services, you know, there's fragmentation of the subscriber base, confusion in the market you know you've suddenly got three or four or five subscriptions and so there's there's going to be some sort of consolidation down the road that, that's that's the expectation here in can it was something that was um a, a big subject of um nent group president and ceo and as jensen's keynote on monday night you know the idea of this uh, proliferation of of local SVODs, you know, it's going to end up with some period of consolidation at some point. And there's a real sense of a land grab happening. All these new streamers 
expanding like obviously Nent Group has got Viaplay and that's expanding around the world. It's, you know, it's launching into the UK and Canada and you know it's, it's got a 12 million subscriber target for 2025, which is small beer compared to the 200 million for Netflix and Amazon and so forth. But you know it's, it's probably the, the most advanced of the European streamers. But even Jensen is saying that there's there's going to be some period of consolidation soon. So that that's the expectation. And, you know there's a, a boom in original production because of all these streamers. You know, not just in Russia, but around the world. But down the road, there's going to be a, a, a bit of a crunch with all the consolidation. Yeah, it felt like Anders was kind of not quite, you know, saying, come get me about Biopi, you know, in the years ahead. But it was definitely felt like he was suggesting that at some point Viaplay could, he didn't say this specifically, but, you know, you could imagine a world where Viaplay merges with an, another streamer. Or it felt like he, he mentioned um, the idea is to get in as many attractive territories as possible before, you know, a certain t- uh, period, which I think is when he thinks all the consolidation is going to happen. Yeah, to make Viaplay an attractive potential acquisition who knows but in the meantime yeah they're definitely making hay while while the sun shines commissioning lots and lots of originals and um one of the things he mentioned was the fact that you know what was niche even just three years ago is could now be mainstream and squid game again came up in that conversation so yeah it looks very promising for for services that would have once been considered niche um to actually you know there's a there is potential audience demand there carolina what about some of the other trends that you felt came out of the market and some of the trends that were explored in C21 Kids. Um, Climate change is very much on the agenda at the moment. Kids' mental health as well. How are those topics feeding into industry discussions moving forwards? Yeah, so so those topics, climate change, mental health, diversity, I mean, we've been talking about them for quite some time now, haven't we? And they're they're still huge um, in not just in kids TV, but in, in TV on the whole. But we're definitely still seeing that at MIP Junior um, with climate change themed shows that, that were being pitched. Um, everybody's focusing on diversity, talking about the diverse characters, diverse themes um, that are in the shows that they're pitching. I think something that, that I found quite interesting, actually, from, from one of the MIP Junior sessions on the subject of diversity um, is that, you know, when we talk about it, generally, we're, we're sort of talking about race, gender, physical disabilities, etc. But one research firm, Kids Knows Best, found that, that children are also concerned with diversity and personalities. So featuring characters who might be really shy or a bit quirky or a bit nerdy or who might be getting picked on at school. Um, kids who, characters who really stand for something and, and reflect the wide range of personalities that children have in real life so that's something that I thought was quite interesting that I picked up on but yes I mean diversity climate change mental health is another one we're seeing more and more mental health themed kids shows being commissioned and being produced obviously mental health is something that you know has has been getting bigger and bigger in the tv space on the whole in adult content in particular whether it be a drama that features the subject or whether it be a documentary about somebody who's been who's you know who's talking about their own struggles and battles and now it's it's starting to become a bigger thing in in kids as well so we're definitely seeing more shows on that subject and everybody all the producers and and tv channels are really focusing on it as as something important that they're going to keep looking at. And another thing that I sort of wanted to point out was about, you know, we've been talking a lot lately about maintaining high quality content in general in TV at a time when so much program is being produced to cater for the increased demand and the huge number of platforms and channels that are now available. 
and how you can produce that much and still maintain high quality. Um, And in the kids space, it appears that while quality is, of course, still very important, the quality of delivery isn't as important as the content itself and the experience that it is providing to its viewers. And uh, one research company, Dubit, talked about this in one session at MIP Junior. And I think it what, what they found makes makes a lot of sense because we know that kids watch a lot of lower quality stuff on social media platforms like TikTok or YouTube, where usage among young people is 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 really really high and um, but it shows that high quality doesn't necessarily lead to high usage um, and we know that that children will get just as much enjoyment out of a short video on a social media platform as they will from a, a high-end kids tv series so while quality is still important it's not as of paramount importance to them as it as it is in in adult tv and obviously social media is is very important to kids as well because it's where their where their friends are so from, from MIP Junior on to Mia, that's a, another market that we've got coming up. I mean, the sense seems to be that hopefully the world is opening up again and uh, more and more of these in-person events are, are taking place. Yeah, there were quite a few people uh, I spoke to here in Cannes who had previously been to a lot of events, uh, some in Prague, Dubrovnik, Lille. So people are getting out and about. And I think the more that happens, you know, the more... They post on social media, you know, there's that element of FOMO that I think is building in the industry. And I think people will more and more want to be there rather than feel like they're missing out. So I think for those who can travel, that's a that's a positive thing. And um, obviously there is more admin and stuff, but it's not too arduous. It is doable. And I think, yeah, there's people going onwards now to Mia in Italy, um, a drama focused event. And then obviously, yeah, attention turning to C21's Content London event, um, which is running from November 29th to the 2nd of December, covering all the different genres. We'll have kids stuff there, formats, factual, and obviously drama. So yeah, there's a really real sense of kind of optimism and, and confidence in events and the importance, I think, as we, we've talked about of meeting in person. I think that's what everyone has been saying, really. It's, you know, you can't crack a joke really over Zoom, just the time, timing doesn't work. And people realize the importance of Zoom for certain things, like giving feedback on scripts and things like that can, can be helpful once the show is already, you know, the wheels are turning. But in terms of new business, it's all about events. And obviously, if you're working in the TV business, you need new business. So everyone, I think, is yeah realizing the importance of coming to events. And now that it's feasible, it's just great news. C21 Kids Editor and Senior Reporter Carolina Kaminska, C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, and Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks. Nico spoke to a host of execs at MIPCOM, and among them was Nordic Entertainment Group Chief Content Officer Philippa Wallerstam. The company behind streaming service Viaplay is in the midst of an original production spree, and Wallerstam outlined what she's looking for and how Viaplay plans to tackle markets such as the US, UK and Canada as part of its ambitious international expansion. It seems that, like, at the moment, not a day goes by without a new original being commissioned for Viaplay. There's a lot of content, and this is all part of the strategy ahead of the international expansion of the streaming service to new territories, including the UK and the US, in the next 12 months or so. And I suppose the way it will be framed, potentially, the streamer, is given it's Nordic, and Nordic noir is such a kind of defining feature of um, the Nordic production 
Um, are you happy that the streamer could potentially be kind of associated with Nordic Noir so heavily? Yes, of course. Who wouldn't be happy to be associated with Nordic Noir? I think that is always going to be uh, one of our cores and an area that we are always going to focus on. But what is also important uh, for us is to position ourselves beyond Nordic Noir. So Nordic Noir is going to be always important, but this year we are producing 50 uh, original shows and next year we are going to have at least 60. Uh, and you know some of them will definitely be strong Nordic Noir, but not all. So it's important that we will position beyond that as well. But I guess it's fair to say that when we start, when we come new to a market, that's the first thing people will associate with us. And we do have a lot of strong Nordic Noir shows. Other areas we are pretty strong in is, of course, also more sort of light drama. Dramedy is one of our strengths in the Nordics. But I think the second focus for going internationally is actually going to be young adult. Because uh, there we have produced a lot of very strong shows. And I think the Nordics in general are quite well advanced when it comes to young adults. So I would say that's probably our second focus area internationally. Cool. And... I did a quick search through C21's uh, website and for the phrase Nordic Noir and it was almost 10 years ago that it first popped up. How does Nordic Noir differ now to how it did then, do you think? Uh, I think in the beginning it was quite uh, classic and, and, and uh, uh, yeah, the typical sort of crime, uh, misunderstood uh, police officer and sort of uh, dark and a bit gloomy in general. I think now we have expanded uh, a lot more, we're a lot more innovative. Uh, a good example of that is our last, uh, not one of our last shows, but one show we, we launched earlier this uh, this year, uh, Face to Face, the second season, uh, we have two seasons, which is a Danish crime show that is definitely Nordic Noir, but with a new twist. Uh, that's one example. So we're constantly innovating and, and elaborating outside of that. Then I think Nordic Noir has also positioned beyond crime, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, we can do drama that is sort of Nordic Noir, and it's a way of telling the story, a way that is more real. Uh, that's how I see uh, Nordic Noir. I think, you know, nowadays, even uh, producers outside of the Nordics are interested in showing real people and uh, um, not making everything so glossy. That is a lot Nordic Noir to me. Tell me a bit about the strategy when it comes to English language commissions. Yeah, and this is an area that we are focusing more and more on. Uh, so this is definitely an area you will see us expanding in. It's just the beginning, uh, but we are doing it in slightly different ways. So we are producing kind of what we call Nordic shows, but in English. Uh, so I guess most um, one of the recent most known ones is, of course, that we're doing a movie together with uh, Lasse Hallström, also now starring Lily Cole was announced last week. So that is still a Nordic show. It's sort of it's, it's uh, created by our own Viaplay Studios. We have Lasse Hallström as the director, arguably his maybe global, uh, not necessarily, even though he's, he's Nordic by origin. Uh, but the show is going to be completely in English. Uh, and we own it in all of our territories. We will, of course, want to distribute it also beyond our own territories and, and work on that. But that's one part of it. And then the other side is more of sort of uh, tentpole flagship shows that we don't control ourselves, uh, that we are going as a co-production partner. And we have announced a few examples of that. So we, we are doing The Swarm uh, uh, together with Beta, and we are doing uh, Billy the Kid. Uh, and now also last, we, we are announcing Last Light. Uh, and those shows are sort of, we want to secure them for our audiences, but we will secure it for our broad markets. Uh, and our definition of broad markets are the markets that we have sports in. 
so that for these shows it will be in the Nordics, it will be in, in the Baltics, it will be in Poland and Netherlands. Uh, and that's kind of uh, the simple rule uh, that you know some of the very big international shows we still want to secure, but for our broad markets. Uh, and then we go in as co-production partners and we can work with uh, pretty much anyone on those. Uh, and then of course we, we'll also do a lot of strong English shows that we do ourselves and we control it for our markets. That's kind of the simplest way of categorizing between the two. And how does the sale of those, um, I think a dozen or so production labels that were part of then to Fremantle impact the companies potentially that you're looking to work with? Sorry. <laughs> so, how does the sale of the dozen or so Nordic production companies that were part of yeah. Nent to yeah. Fremantle, does that affect your strategy at no. all? No, it's not actually affecting our strategy at all uh, because we were working with them still on arm's length uh, as we are with any other production company and that's also one of the reasons why we decided to um, to spin them off because it doesn't. We don't need to own them. It's not. They are mostly focused on non-scripted shows, and uh, uh, we can acquire that from partners. We do so much unscripted in our local territories, but we are working with the best uh, from different parts. So we will continue to work with them in a very similar manner to what we did before. So it's not actually impacting our strategy at all. Our own Viaplay Studios that we still have, uh, we have repurposed so that they are only focused on Viaplay, uh, pretty much, with one exception of Paprika. Uh, that is also service providing to other companies. But apart from that, our own Viaplay studios will focus on Viaplay. Uh, and there we have an advantage because we're working much closer with them to sort of develop ideas together and they'll be very focused on Nordic shows. So uh, they are the ones behind uh, uh, Hilma, the last uh, Hallström movie. As I said. And that's a good example. And you mentioned sports earlier. We're seeing a big uh, uptick in obviously demand for sports, but around that demand for sports programming, so sports documentaries focusing yeah. potentially on football clubs. Is that an area that you're interested in? Very much so, and as you know, you kind of pointed it out in your own question, it's a very low hanging fruit uh, for us. And I think we have all the opportunities, uh, especially for some of these rights that we now have in nine markets. Uh, of course, there's an opportunity to work together with the rights holders. It's a lot easier uh, if we do documentaries than if anyone else does when we have the rights. Uh, because we can show the clips and we can show we have we have much more freedom so it's definitely an area that we are looking into more and more we are doing now as a kind of a good starting point maybe uh, a reportage show about Karolin Wozniacki uh, the tennis star uh, that is not linked to our rights but that's kind of we're going in that direction and we should definitely do more in this area it's a very low-hanging fruit you can say and going back to Nordic Noir obviously and earlier uh, at MIPCOM there was uh, a session focusing on Nent and Viaplay and they showed a showreel and it was, uh, I think, Painted Black was the song, it was a cover and it was very much, you know, dark shows. Uh, and elsewhere at MIPCOM, mainly in the formats arena, people have been talking about how much there's demand for fun and light yeah. programming. How do you think, you know, that squares out given you know, that's almost the audience, we're being told the audience is looking for two different things. And especially yeah. when you look at the success of Squid Game, yeah. which is such a dark show. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that's light? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, I think uh, we will always have, uh, it is a very, the, the clip you talk about, it's a very dark, it's intentionally also very dark. It's not necessarily very representative of everything we do. Uh, but I think it's always going to be a demand for strong uh, crime 
uh, strong crime shows will always be uh, important, uh, no matter uh, sort of what market environment. But we in Sweden, we just uh, premiered uh, one of our first local movies uh, that is more of a comedy, still very serious undertone, but it's still a comedy and it skyrocketed. And I think it did for exactly the reason you mentioned, because people are looking for light entertainment and something that is a little bit easier to digest. And we have the same with the success of Pony in Norway uh, is another good example of, yeah, definitely we are doing a lot more light uh, than we were when we started. Then we have actually done quite a lot of lighter shows uh, for the last few years. But I guess the most dangerous thing you can do in content is uh, to say that, no, that's out, we'll not do that anymore. So to think that now people are a bit, you know, sad, we shouldn't do anything serious anymore, that would be very dangerous. Uh, so we are covering pretty much, yeah, both, you can say, with all of the shows that we produce. And with services like HBO Max and Disney Plus already arriving um, in some of the territories, your via players either already in or intending to go in. How fierce is the fight for original content? Um, for original content, uh, it's a bit different for us, like in the Nordics, compared to the new markets that we go into. In the Nordics, we've been building our position for such a long time, and there is no one producing more content than we do in the Nordics. So I would say that we are not, the competition is of course fierce, but we are in a very good place uh, and we have very good relationships with all of the strong production companies in the Nordics and we know the market so well. Uh, and I think that we are quite uh, innovative in the sense that we also dare to work with new talent, uh, which is of course very appreciated and, and liked by the production companies. So in the Nordics I would say uh, it's not uh, we are not at all kind of sensing that it's, we don't lack, right, so sort of we don't miss out on opportunities. We, we always ask. Uh, so that, I, I would say, in the new markets we come to, we are the newbie. Uh, and that's kind of the same for the others. Uh, so there I think we are much more even grounds uh, and we are sort of trying to learn as fast as we can. One thing that's differentiating us slightly from, from many of the others, not all, but many of the others, is that we really understand the importance of local. Uh, so we, we are you know, trying to find the local uh, executive producers on the ground that can be our representatives there uh, and gain from their experience, etc. Et so that, I guess, is what's differentiating us. But we are not as innovative, you can say, in terms of daring to work with unproven production companies, unproven talents in the same way in our new markets as we are in the Nordics. I really hope we get there, uh, but it's going to take a little bit of time uh, to understand and learn the market before we can be as uh, innovative as we are in the Nordics. And obviously this year's MIPCOM is slightly different to previous editions. How did you prepare differently for, for this year's edition and what were you looking to get out of it? For us, of course, or for me personally, it's a lot more focused on our new markets, uh, new markets and sort of international corporate opportunities. It's all I'm focusing on here. Uh, I'm not meeting anyone Nordic uh, because that we can do at home and that we've done uh, over the past year. So I guess that's slightly different. Uh, it is, of course, proving, sort of showing our strategy as well. We don't have anyone from the Nordic scripted team here. Uh, they are all uh, back home <laughs> working. Uh, but for me, it's very exciting, of course, to meet many partners that we haven't met in, in a long time uh, and also to focus on our new markets. Philippa Wallerstam from Nordic Entertainment Group. Fremantle International Chief Executive Jens Richter spoke to Nico Franks about how the production and distribution giant has approached this year's MIPCOM differently to previous editions. 
its push into high-end factual with a dramatic streak, and why it's important to strike a balance between working with new and established talent. So this year's MIPCOM has been unlike any of them before. How did Fremantle prepare for this year's event? We stayed flexible, Nico. Um, so the way we prepared for it was a virtual launch of the, the new lineup. So we prepared everything. We prepared a catalogue. Um, um, we reached out to clients starting like three, four weeks ago. Um, provide them with a catalogue, started um, using our virtual screening room. Um, so by now, most of the clients actually are pretty familiar with the new slate. Um, and then the decision to come here, we took about yeah, four or five weeks ago. You know, we reached out to clients and the surprising amount of European clients that they're coming over. And uh, so here we are with uh, predominantly with the European sales team. And it's two days of back-to-back um, -back meetings. And uh, this is close to the end of the day number one. And um, it was actually good. And how have you found it being here with kind of a fraction of the, the team that you would normally have? It's very focused, right? It's very focused. And um, it's interesting. It's, it, it's more about the personal experience, seeing your clients again face-to-face. -face. And um, there's this not surprising and surprising at the same time there's excitement you know people people need people people like to meet people and a lot of the people that i saw today i haven't seen for one and a half years more than one and a half years so it's uh, it's great and um, i think when you think about it, what that means in the future every moment where whenever it's possible to think about a new market opportunity you know like C21 drama or London screenings, you know, I, it, it's, I think especially for European clients, it will be well attended. And yeah, that, that joyful uh, atmosphere that has been here at MIPCOM this year, um, we're hearing that audiences are wanting to see that in their unscripted, but then in scripted, you know, with shows like Squid Game, which are very, very dark, <laughs> yeah. we're seeing the complete yeah. you can't opposite. You can it's all escapism and blue sky. Right? Sure, yeah. So is it, is it basically, you know, it's kind of like having a balanced diet in terms of what audiences want? They don't want just one thing or the other. I think it's not so much about COVID or the experience of COVID. I think COVID was kind of an accelerator for the industry overall. You know, there is a transition from linear to more non-linear consumption and that opens the door for more of a variety of shows, genres, colors. Um, if you're not dependent on a linear time slot, you can try out stuff, right? You can, you can offer buckets of, of, of shows on your platform and that's what many platforms do, right? So we see a rise of young adult, we see a rise of horror or, you know, like uh, thriller kind of shows. At the same time, if you have a great comedy, that, that also works. If you have an amazing costume drama, big event that is relevant to the, today's audiences, um, that can also fly. Um, so I think uh, there are less and less boundaries, less and less limits, and um, it's about the individual show and uh, we look at it from the perspective, do we think that this one show, independent of the genre, can break through and that's very much the question of the talent behind the show and the voices behind the show. So we're not, we're not putting a filter on it and say, oh, we're only looking for mainstream blue sky or we're only looking for cop shows or we're only looking for this or that, you know, it's like, no, we're open.
And I heard someone saying that what was considered niche three years ago can be can be can be a real audience today, very much of an audience. And when you look at the European market at the moment, for instance, you have um, all the all the local players pretty active. You have, I think, the state broadcasters are super active. They all launch their 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 nonlinear platforms. Um, you have the commercial broadcasters super active. You have the European subscription services super active. The local ones, some are pan-regional, and um, and we have um, traditionally, obviously, the global platforms like Netflix and Amazon in the market. But now we have an HBO. But now we have and Star is also existing. But now we have even new platforms coming to the market, like like Disney, and then with their Star brand. Um, and um, so there is such a variety of platforms out there, and they. They cater to their own audiences. Some are more brand agnostic, and some are wider. Um, so yeah, what has been niche a couple of years ago can be a super interesting audience in today's world. And one of the recent developments within Fremantle is a push into high-end factual. Yeah. And um, there was the announcement this week about Arctic Drift yeah. selling around the world. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit about the, the thinking behind that push. Well, you look at Fremantle, you look at Fremantle maybe um, 10 years ago. Fremantle 10 years ago was predominantly entertainment, big entertainment, right? And we still love our big entertainment. Um, and, and we're super active in that space. Um, then about seven, eight years ago, seven years ago, we said um, drama. So we had a big push into drama and look at it today. I think we, we're launching this year more than 50 dramas. It's a lot. Um, and we produce drama all around the world. So it was about three years ago um, that we said um, we are, when you look at the non-scripted, so we are great in entertainment, we are pretty good in factual entertainment. You know, we work with Jamie Oliver since 20 years, so we do cooking, we do shows like Grand Designs, uh, Continental Railways, uh, we do, um, so we do fact and we do lifestyle, you know. Um, the one that we didn't do so much was factual. And then we started working with mainly third-party producers and some internal producers to look at like high-end factual. Um, and the first one we got engaged in was Enslaved, Sam Jackson, uh, we did that with a Canadian-Israeli producer with Simca. And, um, and that is a big budget, six one-hour, big epic, um, factual series about, well, the history of slavery, of the enslaved. Um, and the idea there was like each episode, one rack, diving down. So it's a mix between history, education, and adventure. That's why we embarked on that show, which was, you know, like uh, thinking about how big is the potential audience. And then we went out, right? And, um, and it became a colossal success. And uh, the BBC came on board. Uh, they did their own four-hour version of it. Did phenomenally well for the BBC too. By the way, Mandy Chang was our partner on the BBC side. Yeah. So she edited the four-hour version and she did a tremendous job for that, on that. Um, we, um, it was about also, Close to three, yeah, three years ago that we embarked on Arctic Drift, 
At that time, our German production company, Ufa, they called and said, well, we have this unique opportunity to get a camera team on board of this icebreaker. And this is a unique expedition, once in a lifetime. It's 10 years in the making, 300 scientists, one icebreaker, end of summer, going up uh, to the north, uh, close to the North Pole, frozen into the ice, and then drifting with the ice across the North Pole. Basically a journey across one year in the ice. $150 million budget of the expedition, one camera team on it. You want to do it? Oh yeah, of course you want to do it, right? Um, and, and why did we do that? Because Arctic drift is it's climate change, biggest topic that defines our life in the future by a mile. Um, very, that's a mainstream topic by now. And since we embarked on it three years ago to now, already, you know, it's like it, it's more important. And super psyched that we have now. We have uh, PBS for the US on board. Channel 4 for the UK, France TV in, 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 in France, all each of those three got their own bespoke versions where we focused on the UK scientist group, on the French, on the Americans a little bit more. Um, we got Amazon on board for Canada, Australia, and then we sold it like all around the world. Um, now had 170 territories and we're going to get second windows in. Uh, I'm super excited also that uh, most of it, uh, most of the clients will launch it around November time. With, around Glasgow, mm -hmm. um, and that's perfect timing as well. Um, so that's a long explanation that we started the process three years ago with, with regards to High Impact Show. Um, and when you look at this, the, like, the catalog lineup for, for MIPCOM for this market, it's uh, second season of Expedition with Steve Backshall. Um, we have more signs. We had Day Zero that we did with together with Tencent in China. Um, all kind of topics, uh, how it feels to be free, Alicia Keys, um, the black women that changed American entertainment industry, um, all kind of topics, big topics, um, topics that make a difference. And I'm super happy that uh, Mandy, who worked with us on Mandy Chang, who worked with us on the BBC version of Enslaved, is now part of the Fremantle family and runs our factual team central factual team so it's going to be now we even put more focus on factual and we're going to put even more focus also in, in creating developing factual from inside of Fremantle and everybody's super excited about that and Arctic Drift was sold to a, a mix of different yeah. kinds of broadcasters and State platforms broadcasters, commercial broadcasters premium pay sport services you know that's the holy grail in television in general when you find a show that is premium enough to sell subscriptions and at the same time it's it's broad enough and, and, and exciting enough for for bigger audiences so you can also go free tv you know it's like that's perfect and that's broadly kind of the how you see svod and avod kind of differing in terms of the types of programming that are kind of um kind of more suited to the respective AVOD, you know like there's svod there's avod there's freevod you know, you have all the state broadcasters and you look at their, their, like their BBC i players and Mediatek in Germany and all that kind of, and those platforms become better and better. I mean, BBC i player is, is the poster child of, of amazing free VOD platform, you know. So you have VOD in all kinds of varieties. And I think it's uh, when you go back um, in the days before we, we had VOD, you know, you had uh, premium pay, 
you had state broadcasters and you had commercial broadcasters. And now you put the VOD component on top of it and we find ourselves back in the same kind of world, in the iteration of that world. Technologically much further developed, of course, but we have a world where we have consumers that love to pay for their service. They're open to pay for their services, so they buy subscription. You have those, especially in Europe, um, that but they love their state broadcasters. And you have those who, who, who love television but don't want to pay for a subscription. And for them, AVOD will be the solution, right? Um, and, and AVOD also is offered in all, all kinds of forms. You know, it's like AVOD is the extension of local commercial broadcasters. Or, or platforms that used to be local commercial broadcasters and now are more and more able platforms. And at the same time, I think like uh, platforms like IMDb TV have a glorious future, right? Because you always have this separation within your consumer group, those that love to pay and therefore avoid watching this quote-unquote for them maybe disturbing ads. And then there are those who don't mind watching the ads, but they don't want to pay. And there was the recent deal for a dozen or so Nordic production companies yeah. from Nent. Yeah. Um, was that an opportunistic deal or something no, that you've been planning for a while? It wasn't opportunistic. There was planning for a while. So it's like when you look at Fremantle, um, clearly we want to grow, right? Um, we are producing shows in 25 countries, good 25 countries around the world global production network. We call ourselves a global production family because we think we, we are super supportive to our production labels. And, um, and um, the NEND production companies, the, this is nice, it's a new label. Uh, we call it all the NEND labels. We very much welcome now into the Fremantle family and um, Scandinavia is a terrific market for, for creativity. It's a tremendous market for quality. And when you look at uh, original formats traveling around the world, besides of the UK, when you look at Europe, Scandinavia and, and the Benelux are the two other regions that have a very strong track record of creating shows that travel the world. So Scandinavia is super interesting for us. And we're seeing streamers like HBO Max and Disney Plus taking slightly different approaches to co-productions in Europe. Um, HBO Max seems more open to them than Disney does, but Disney hasn't ruled them out, I don't think. For you, what's the ideal kind of new streamer? Is it, It's one that is willing to kind of window and um, <laughs> not take it global exclusives? Uh, there is no single answer. You know, we love working with them all. That's, and that's an honest answer. You know, we work with Netflix on... on um, on a multitude of shows, you know, from Sorrentino, Hand of Gods, his new movie, to Too Hot to Handle. I mean, that's a bandwidth, right? Uh, I love working with them. We love working with, with Amazon. We love working with, uh, with Disney. Um, we do quite some shows with Disney now. Um, love working with Stars. Um, love working with Paramount Plus. Uh, we do a big factual series with them now, soon to be announced. Um, we, we love working with HBO, we do a lot with them in Latin America, we do a lot with them in Europe, so it's like, and each platform offers different opportunity for us, right? Um, and um, sometimes it's the, it's the possibility to co-produce, 
Sometimes it's some of them are open to do single territory deals, even as commissioners, and then we can keep the rest of the world. Um, sometimes to co-produce. Um, sometimes it is that opportunity to do that one global deal and. Um, and we get the budget and the backing to create an amazing show without thinking too much of how to put the budget together. Um, there's never one answer to that. So we are open to everybody while at the same time, you know, we, we love working with our traditional clientele, which are local broadcasters, right? We, we love working with BBC, ITV, Channel 4, UK TV, you know, it's like, and that all across Europe. Um, they are the strong backbone of our base business, of our fundamental business. And there seems to be a bit of a debate brewing at this year's MIPCOM about the extent to which um, streamers are willing to work with new talent um, compared to, I suppose, the kind of uh, classic tr traditional broadcasters. In terms of how you approach talent and established talent versus new talent, how do you strike a balance between having both? That's a very good question, Nico. That's a very good question. Um, clearly, when you work with an established talent in a genre, or, on a, or not, not necessarily in a genre, in a, uh, in a program space like Paulo Sorrentino, you know, and he's clearly a little bit more um, auteur. He's an auteur, right? So it was. Um, we did, my, uh, we did uh, Young Pope with him and the new Pope. And, and that came out of a situation, um, our Italian production company has been working with him on a movie before and he never did television. And they asked him, so Lorenzo Mieli asked him, if you, if you want to do television, what would it be? And he said, well, this story about the Vatican. Okay, let's do that, right? And then they did the Young Pope, new Pope. Now together with Lorenzo, they did Hand of God for, for Netflix. So it's like, that's, that is a talent, a very unique talent that we work with across multiple projects and, and we partner with him on series, on movie, you know, it's like if he wants to do a factual tomorrow, we're going to do a factual with him tomorrow. So we give him a hub out of which he can create shows he wants to do, independent of which platform he wants to hit with the, with the show. So he's not linked to one platform only. That's opportunity working with us. So we, we give a home base to work across genres, across uh, program categories and across platforms, right? So that's established. Then on, on the other hand, the other extreme, maybe uh, at the moment when you look at our slate, current productions from Hand of God with Sorrentino, is, it's a drama called um, The Responder, Dancing Ledge. Lawrence and Chris are producing that for the BBC. Uh, it's starring Martin Freeman. So Martin Freeman is certainly established talent. He's huge, right? Um, but it's written by Michael Schumacher. And Michael Schumacher, he came through a talent program that was backed by Dancing Ledge. They were looking for new voices, new writers. And Michael was an ex-cop. And basically what, what he did with Responder, he brought a lot of his own experiences to paper, right? So he's a young, new, young, he's a new voice. And, and when you look at the outcome, and uh, we're soon going to have um, the episodes ready, I saw some rough cuts. 
It's the most authentic cop show you have ever seen in your life. And Martin Freeman, he is at his best. So that thing, that show for the BBC, I think it will do wonders for the BBC. It will make headlines, it will win awards, it will make, it will make really make an impact, right? And that is be because we found this new voice, this guy who has never done drama, given him the opportunity and we found him and he found us and he trusted us and he trusted uh, Lawrence from Dancing Ledge to do that together and um, and that's exciting so that's you know balancing huge established talent while at the same time yes we want to nurture new talent and that could be for drama it could be for factual you know it's like um, we're always looking for for new talent they want we want to back them Right, um, because um, frankly speaking, um, if all of us hunt for the same established talent, that's a very narrow market. And over time, that would be also not the most exciting market. Right? Because television is, is moving all the time. You know, it's like the taste is changing all the time. So you constantly have to find the new voices that help you to create the new shows that then satisfy new demand and appetite for new kind of shows. You know, there's a lot of television that you, you watch today across multiple platforms that wouldn't have been possible five or ten years ago. So it's a very fast changing market at the same time. Jens Richter from Fremantle. Carlotta Rossi-Spencer, head of former acquisitions at Banerjee, spoke to Nico Franks about what it's like to be back at MIP after a two-year hiatus, what she's on the lookout for, and what the industry's focus on inclusivity means for remaking socially responsible formats in different markets. So, Carlotta, we're here at MIPCOM 2021. Obviously, things are a bit different to usual, but it's great to be back. How has Banerjee approached this market differently to, to how it would have done a few years ago? We're not, you know, here with a, with a massive presence. We don't have a tent, uh, but still we're here uh, from group and uh, some, some of my colleagues from some of the companies around the world are here as well. Uh, we do have, you know, a presence in the advertising space, so people might walk, might walk by Majestic and see that. Um, so we're here, but I think it's for everyone. It's a testing ground for all of us to come back. Um, the feeling is everybody's really happy to be back. I think I'm seeing a lot of people that I haven't seen for a long time and, and I'm, I'm sure you'll get this comment from all the people that you were interview. So the presence is, you know, still here. I think it is important for us to be here in terms of acquisitions and in terms of our relationships and the growth of those relationships over the years. And the other bit is, um, is the fact that, you know, we are picking up again on one-to-one -one meetings and going through those pitches is really important at this point and um, we've seen already some you know quite good formats coming up for this market so I think it's it's really really good for all of us um, that's why we're here and because obviously everyone got so used to pitching online over zoom how are you finding it yeah being back in the room are the pitches slightly different I think it was interesting. We had um, we had a, a, a almost normal pre-MIP meeting, which you know where we invited some distributors and and indie producers to pitch. And I think the general um, uh, feeling for those pitches was when they got into the room, they're like, "Oh, this is so. We know how to do this, but we feel a little bit rusty." And uh, but it was great, and everybody pitched marvelously. So we had a you know we had a very good day. 
Um, the other bit is, I think, taking the time to, take, to ha ask those questions, not thinking that you're on Zoom and you have a certain amount of time, because Zoom now has become restrictive in a way. Instead, here, if we sit down and we take a little bit more time, I think it builds also on the questions that you might want to ask, um, the, even the ones that are a little bit more you know, in-depth and, and, and analytical in one of the formats. So I think it gives us more chances to, to go through the formats in a, in, a, in a slightly, you know, it is a more personal way, yes, but it's also a way to analyze things and, and get information that mm, you might not get always on a Zoom. So, yeah. So you spoke on the first day of MIPCOM um, during the Frapper Summit. Uh, tell me a bit about what you spoke about. So, of course, you know, it's, it's a pleasure and it's an honor to be part of Frappa. And um, I was invited to speak. And, and I think the main idea of this day and of, of these um, conferences for Frappa is also to open up to indies and, and make people who are independent or very small or starting up a production company just know that big groups are there. Um, open arms, basically. And um, so it was about, you know, of course, we have a, a, a very big group, as everybody knows now. The scale is massive. But at the same time, we do, you know, still, still focus a lot on um, the creativity, but the creativity meaning the talent from people. So we pay very close attention to talent. We play, pay very close attention to the business know-how that is part of our DNA. Um, and to the fact that, you know, we're story makers. So for me, this word story makers means a lot of things. Uh, it's not just telling, it is making. And in making, for us, it's, it's being open to different kinds of talent, being open to different kinds of collaborations. It could be, you know, I do acquisitions, so the normal acquisitions is I pick up a show, it's an option, we work on it, hopefully we sell it. Lately, we have been doing a lot more co-productions, co-development. Uh, co-developments is, is one of the best things to do because you're, you are um, supporting with the experience maybe somebody who is very small, maybe a two-people two team. We have co-developments with, with, with teams that are two, two people. And at the same time, we are getting very fresh and new ideas that, you know, could be lost in the market. So that is very important to us. Um, it is, so the scale is not something that hinders us from being extremely uh, nimble and fast and being attentive to uh, new talent popping up or to, you know, in our case also, um, it is about using our internal talent to the maximum and, and supporting them as much as we can. And through that, it's also about, um, you know, we have big, um, big brands. Those big brands, uh, are also something that we need to continue to adapt and we need to continue to evolve. So that is part of the creativity, that is part of the strength. Plus the new shows. So, you know, we did pick up, um, I think uh, you guys also wrote about it, about um, Limitless Win, which is a brand new show that's going to air very soon. Um, uh, Language of Love is another one. We picked up a small show that was in, uh, in Denmark that's called Famous Last Words, and that's a very particular show. So we, go, we span, uh, but we always look for something that we think might be, you know, A, good for our producers, and our producers can't do anything because there's so many. B, it is something that has a, has a reason to be and has a reason to be on the market and should be, you know, and we should pay attention to it. So it's about this, it's about the openness, and it's about um, the partnerships. Um, 
that's what you know I talked about. Um, I don't want people to, we don't want as a group, people to fear the fact that it's such a big group because it is made of people. So if you have a relationship with us, you are going to have a relationship and we're going to cater to that. We're not going to uh, ignore it or forget it. Yeah, because sometimes, yeah, the received wisdom in the industry is that companies of that scale and size, innovation can get lost. So, yeah, it's partnerships with yes. the with the small to medium-sized companies. Yeah. So what are you looking for at the moment? Uh, you know, everybody always asks us. It's interesting because I don't, um, you know, we have, as I was saying earlier, we have so many companies that have uh, so many different specialties. So we go to, like, small from small factual companies to companies that do the big primetime shows, the Big Brother, the Master Chef, those big, uh, you know, all against one big shows and uh, studio ones uh, or reality ones. So to tell you the truth, there's not a genre that I'm looking for because I look, luckily, I'm in a, I always say this because I am in a great position to be able to watch so many things and to be able to look at things and, and ideas that could go from you know, our uh, company in Germany, Good Times, that does factual and to uh, End of All Shine in, in the States. And that is a privilege. Um, I think, you know, as everyone, every year we just, and everybody says, I hate, this is not something that I want to use because the next big thing for me is already, it's not, it's an old concept. So we do need to look at good ideas. We do need to find right partners um, for anyone. Uh, again, the co-developments that we have been doing have been done with companies from like the UK and France working together. Uh, another one, the UK and the, uh, the UK and Italy. Another one, Italy and the US. So we are in a privileged position, all of us, to be able to have this openness to different cultures, and we're using it. And. In terms of that openness and um, inclusivity seems to be a, a big theme at this year's event. How is that reflected in the format slate at Banerjee? So we do have a few, you know, we do have, um, as everyone, we do have shows and we are extremely attentive to shows that can bring, um, it's not only inclusivity, I think it's a broader idea, like the, the social responsibility. So the social responsibility goes through telling the stories of people that might not be told. We have been producing Radio Gaga, for example, in Spain for nine seasons now. Uh, we have a, a new show that's called The School That Tried to End Racism, which is phenomenal in the UK. And it's exactly that. The title tells, you know, <laughs> everything about it. Um, because, and, and it's so... so Inclusivity is not about just having, you know, opening the door to people that need to be included, which is important, but it's also about telling the right story. And those kinds of shows tell the right story with respect. Um, and that's the most important thing. Another one is um, the, uh, you know, some shows that are uh, important in another direction of inclusivity, like Drag Me Out from Dra Denmark, which has done greatly. And it's about, you know, all this myth around being drag queens but it's a story again it's about celebrities just going through a um, uh, through a way of like understanding drag queenness <laughs> which is a great concept um, so we have a few I think to, to go back to a point earlier to me because for example I'm I'm already part of this broader um, inclusivity and openness because I am Italian and I've been working in an international um, group and I live in the UK so inclusivity for us it is about 
everything, of course, that we've been talking about, but it's also about culture, it's also about different religion, it's also about different political views. It's about a lot of things. And having a, a group like this that has so many companies, uh, it's more than 120 around the globe, is already in itself, in its DNA, something that is inclusive, because otherwise it would be, you know, a vertical cultural um, system, which is not. And they're all entrepreneurs, they're all independent, and they all have a voice, and, and that is being inclusive. So shows that are coming, there are other shows that are coming up that I can't really uh, yet speak about, but it is these kinds of um, responsible and shows that, again, going back to the story making, really tell the story. It's not about popping in someone who is of another ethnicity into a show. That's not the case, because we can do so much with formats. Um, and that's what we're doing. And I suppose there's extra considerations that have to be made when you're doing shows with a bit more social responsibility compared to, say, you know, a, a show like Deal or No Deal. Um, so what, what do you have in place, you know, in terms of, for example, with Drag Me Out, taking that to different territories around the world um, to ensure that, you know, because every drag culture, I think, in different countries is different as well. So, yeah, what have so, you got in place? Yeah, so you mean like the, how we make it travel, how we respect the fact that, you know, there's different kinds of cultures, you're right. Um, one is our producers, the first producers, the ones who put the, the show on air for the first time are so attentive to all the rules and to really, really knowing how to tell those stories. So that's number one. And they are the ones who will be championing those, those shows through our, our group. The second thing is, so they have the, the expertise. Um, and of course, you're right, you know, let's say, starting from Denmark, is it, how different is it going to be, for example, in Spain? It is going to be different. So we have, luckily, our network is so tight. So it, there's always going to be a collaboration and there's always going to be a very, very strong support between um, the producers working on the shows and in understanding the cultures because again we're part of a group and all these producers have been part of a group for a long time and they know um, about the different cultures because we sit down around tables now hopefully we will again but we've done master classes internally for a lot of our shows where all the producers are there on zoom now and then we'll do them hopefully again in, uh, in real life um, and the other thing is there is a very strong, you know, central team that works around all these, um, all these formats. I'm part of that, you know, Creative Networks team. It is, it is the team that basically takes the formats and then um, transforms them, but not transforms the format, but transforms the way that they are pitched in a way that can be adapted and can be understood by all the different cultures. And then the producers come in. So all of this is... is what I'm finding, because I see it every day, um, a, a great teamwork. So it's a teamwork between producers, the central team, the top managers, everybody really working together. So that's why they start traveling, you know. Um, and we hope even more because, of course, you know, we have the big brands, as we were saying earlier, but these are all new ideas that are popping up. And those need to be pushed as well. It is harder, you're right, with delicate or... You know, something like the school that tried to end racism, it is a delicate uh, topic. Some countries will not pick it up right away, others will. So you have to know where, where you can do that, how you can sit down, what delicacy, how delicate that topic is, and how to tell the story. So, and they're all extremely, extremely good at doing this. So. How have buyers' tastes changed during the pandemic? Oh. 
It's interesting. I think, you know what, I think there was a general psychological sadness. Um, and so I don't think it's really the taste that changed, but it's the reaction to something that has affected us also negatively. So I think we all need what we all, if you sit down, if I sit down with my colleagues, and we're, you know, we've become friends over the years, and I think it's about finding that, I call it a little bit like that Ted Lasso effect. So it makes you just, it just makes you feel good. So you, when you watch something that makes you feel good, then you're in a good place, um, you know, and these things shift. Right now, I think we are in the moment where we just need to feel okay. We need to feel that everything is kind of getting back to normal. So those game shows that are very easy um, to follow and then just kind of like, you know, make you feel that you can be part of the game show is a good thing. They, they can't be too complicated because otherwise people will just, you know, you know I'm not ready for this yet. Um, those shows that, you know, teach you something, but again, make you feel good. Um, Starstruck, we just uh, talked about recently. It's just a feel-good, big entertainment show um, coming to, to the UK. And it's one of those, you know, and you just, you, you can be there and you can feel the good emotions. You don't have to be like, it's not about bad, you know, gossip or, or negativity that has to come out of these shows. It is about, and, and yes, Reality shows, for example, are guilty pleasure, and they will always be. So we're always going to be looking at reality shows. But I've, you've seen, because you've done a lot of pieces on this, it's about the dating. The dating is fun. So it's fun for everyone, because you want to know what happens to those people, even if they're, like, bickering and, and, and I'm putting quotes, cheating on, on one another in the program. It's still fun. So you have the guilty pleasures and the good emotions, I think. Carlotta Rossi-Spencer from Banerjee. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning in to the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 